Well, thank you, Marcus, and good morning again, First Baptist. Uh, I don't have a snappy introduction for you this morning. Uh, I have simply uh, a section from a sermon that was preached in 1741 by a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who was widely considered to be uh, one of America's greatest preachers. He was a part of a team of pastors that traveled around New England, and uh, he went to a church in Enfield. And this time was a period that we call the Great Awakening, when churches around America and then later in Europe uh, began to experience a revival in their relationship with God. But this church in Enfield had left that behind or had not ever gone there. They were described as thoughtless and vain. They had no interest in a passionate relationship with God. And it is in this church that uh, Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's kind of tough to hear. Edward said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell. That's a good starting point. Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in the world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you woke up this morning, but that God has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in this house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Edwards continued on in this manner, warning the church about God's wrath about how God was provoked and awaited them, uh, and, and an eternity in hell awaited them at any moment. He told them that, he, that they hung by a thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about, that they had no desire for a mediator. Then he said these words, but this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious, they may otherwise be. The church in Enfield responded in a very emotional outburst with all sorts of shrieks and screams and wailing and weeping. This church that wanted no passion in their walk. 
God used sinners in the hands of an angry God to provoke revival at the church in Enfield. This morning's message is one I think that we all need to hear. It's one that I need to hear. Everyone here this morning needs to have a higher view of God. None of us have a high enough view of God. We all need to have a higher view. Proverbs 9.9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. My goal this morning is to provoke repentance. And hear me on this. If you don't leave this morning repenting of your view of God, then I failed. Or you didn't listen, which is possible, I guess. Uh, Or you're not saved. Because, indeed, the wise man will be still wiser. We all can increase our view of God. If you'd please stand in honor of the word of the Lord this morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, we'll be reading, starting there, a bunch of different passages this morning, but we'll start here in Isaiah. Isaiah 6 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You may be seated. A.W. Tozer, back in 1959, had these words to say about the church. And I would suggest to you that the church has probably not gotten better since 1959. Here's what he said. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. And we have experienced several lesser evils over the last few years, have we not? Perhaps this is why. As we see in this passage this morning in Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah before the throne of the great sovereign God. He sees the Lord on the throne, and John 12, 41 tells us that the Lord that he sees here is, in fact, Jesus Christ. He sees the pre-incarnate Jesus on the throne, and he describes him as Adonai. This is the name for the Lord that, that stresses God's authority and his majesty. It stresses his sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign. I suspect that our concept of democracy uh, has impacted our theology. We've lost any kind of real idea of what it's like uh, to be under a monarchy. 
Uh, and on top of that, I think democracy tends to elevate um, our own sense of our significance. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad we live in a democracy, but I think that that is the impact that it has had on our theology. You see, Isaiah sees the majesty of God. He sees God sitting high on the throne and lifted up. This is truly the king of kings. In fact, he has a robe, and, and uh, the robe is a symbol of authority. You may, some of you have seen a picture of Queen Elizabeth when she was coronated in 1953. She had an 18-foot robe that had six pages, had to carry this as she walked into Westminster. Well, God's robe, the train of it, fills the entire temple, the entire throne room of God. And he's attended by seraphim, these angels that have six wings. And we don't know exactly what the wings mean, um, but I think this is probably the most plausible. Uh, the angels, these seraphim, have two wings that cover their feet. Exodus 3, 5, you'll remember that um, when God, when Moses came to God, God said, you got to take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. And in Exodus 33, to look on God's glory causes death. And so these seraphim have wings that cover their face. And they have two to fly. They hover around the throne. And as they do so, they proclaim the holiness and the glory of God. All six wings deal specifically with proclaiming with reverence and awe God's glory, holiness. These seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. The word holy means to be set apart. God is so set apart that we cannot even comprehend him. The great prince of preachers, Spurgeon, said this, As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he would not be infinite. If we could understand him, he could not be divine. Tozer said, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite and incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. You see, God's love is perfect because he is holy. His wrath is perfect because he is holy. His mercy and his judgment are perfect because God is holy. He is entirely set apart from us and we struggle to comprehend it. How holy is God? The seraphim say that he is thrice holy. They say holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, this denotes significance. It would be like us underlining, italicizing, bolding, and highlighting something that we wrote. It denotes significance. It is the only attribute of God that is ever mentioned in triplicate. We never see 
God is love, 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 or God is wrath, 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 but we see God is holy, holy, holy. God is three times holy, and the whole earth is full of His glory. These seraphim call back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The picture is that of a call and response. One would say it, and then another one would say it. And when they say it, the foundations of the throne room, the temple of God, shake and smoke fills the throne room. We see this similar picture anytime people come into the presence of God. In Exodus 19, when God met Moses on Mount Sinai, he came with lightning and thunder and smoke, and the whole mountain shook. The prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 1 of his book, he goes into the throne room of God and, God, and Ezekiel describes the setting as a massive storm with lightning and fire. In Revelation 4, John goes into the throne room of God and again, God is attended by lightning and thunder. We see this magnificent scene in every case that absolutely overwhelms the senses with the power and might of God. God's glory and His holiness absolutely overwhelms everyone who comes into His presence. Exodus 19, the people of Israel didn't even go up Mount Sinai. They stayed at the base, and yet they trembled as God came upon the mountain. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God says, you can't. If you do, you'll surely die. And then he says this to him. The Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And Moses could only look at the train, the, the end, the back of God's glory, the afterglow of His glory. And yet when He came off the mountain, just that experience alone made His face glow. And His glowing face scared the people so much that He had to wear a veil afterwards. In Job chapter 42, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The prophet Ezekiel, in his vision of the throne room, said this about God's glory. The appearance of the likeness of the glory. The appearance of the likeness, not even the glory, the appearance of the likeness of it. When he saw it, he fell on his face. During the transfiguration, when God spoke about His Son, Matthew tells us that the disciples fell on their face and were terrified. In Revelation, when John sees Jesus, he falls on, at His feet as though dead. In Revelation chapter 4, when the, the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The 24 elders around the throne fall down and they cast their crowns at the base of the throne of God. And in our text this morning, 
In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when Isaiah comes into the throne room, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Another translation, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is this how you respond to God's glory and His holiness? Do you fall on your face before the throne? The late R.C. Sproul said, that's what happens to people who, ca who catch a glimpse of the character of God. And then he asked this question, do you see that we spend our entire lives veiling ourselves from the true character of God? Our natural bent, our natural inclination is to hide ourselves from Him. Because we know instinctively that as soon as the holy appears, it exposes and reveals anything and anyone who is not holy by virtue of that standard. John MacArthur says we want a God who's non-threatening. But that's not the God of the Bible. We've not even scratched the surface of who God is. But in summary... Just in this section alone, God is the sovereign ruler of the world. He is authoritative and majestic. He is three times holy, set apart as the creator over his creation. He is the focus of all glory, 100% of it. We should fall on our faces before holy God. Unfortunately, as we have a skewed view of God, we also have a skewed view of man. Or better said, we have a wrong view of ourselves. We have set ourselves as the standard of rightness, and we care at best little about God's standard. And so we come to a right view of man. You see, God was create or man was created by God in the image of God. Theologians call this Imago Dei. He is the image bearer of God. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. But as you know, man sinned, and we read about this in chapter 3. The fruit that Satan, the great deceiver, tempted Eve with was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And do you remember how he tempted her? This is what he said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, this is a wrong view of man. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they did so because they wanted to be like God. They rejected God's standard and they sought to replace it with their own. And as you know, the rest is history. In Revelation, excuse me, in Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in Romans 1, Paul tells us where we stand before the Almighty and most holy God. 
He says in Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their, in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on to say that man turned to idolatry. And I would argue especially the idolatry of self. Then in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And in verse 26, Paul says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he goes on to detail humanity's turn to homosexuality. In verse 28, he says this, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And if you take a look at that list, you'll find something on that list that hits you. Something on that list applies to everybody in this room. Therefore, we deserve God's wrath. Romans 1.32 sums up chapter 1. Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And in Romans 3, as Paul continues in this same idea, he says this, All are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in a verse we all know, Paul sums up this chapter, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing for me that I can add to that. Jonathan Edwards was right on the money. It's a shame that we don't care to hear words like Jonathan Edwards today. We want to talk about God's love and we want to talk about God's mercy but we sure detest talking about His holiness and His glory. We certainly don't want to talk about His judgment and His wrath, perhaps because those are the things that we deserve. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a real good summary of who we are, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins. We followed Satan by our very nature. We deserve nothing but God's wrath. We were dead. Dead. You're dead in your sins with the wrath of God awaiting you for eternity. Because you are a part of God's uh, of a rebellion against God's holiness. And some of you remain there today. But thankfully it's not all of the story. A right view of man, a right view of man allows us to also take a look at what we mean to our Creator. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it starts with these words, but God. We were children of wrath, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are loved by God. We deserve wrath. Make no mistake about it. We deserve wrath. But God took that wrath and placed, placed it on His Son, Jesus Christ, because of His love for us. Christ took the penalty for our sins, the wrath that we deserved. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says this, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, his son, the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says this, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserve wrath, but God loves us. And in Romans 5, Paul says this, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ took all of the wrath. He took all of the penalty of sin all of the separation from God the Father, all of it placed on him who knew no sin. And he did so out of his great love for us. A right view of man requires that we recognize who we are apart from God's grace. But a right view of man also reveals 
who we are as loved and redeemed children of God. A high view of God and a right view of man requires our response. It requires our response. The Bible is very clear. If your salvation is nothing more than a fire insurance policy, a a get-out-of-hell-free card, then you've got it all wrong. God didn't save you so that you could continue in disobedience. He did not take your sin and place it on His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you could continue as before, following in the course of this world, following Satan, seeking the passions of your flesh, seeking your own desires. And so this morning, I encourage you to respond. I encourage you to respond. First, if you don't know Jesus, respond by receiving Him as your Lord and Savior. Second Peter tells us that God does not wish any should perish, but that all, all should reach repentance. Avoid God's wrath. Repent and receive Jesus. If that's something you want to do, come up this morning. There'll be some elders up here. I'll be up here. We would love to talk to you about that. Turn to your friend that you came with, that you're sitting with, and talk to them about your desire to know Jesus. Respond by receiving Him if you have not yet done so. Second, respond by obediently pursuing holiness. 1 Peter 1, we read it this morning, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is called holy, uh, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus himself in John 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's it's a pretty simple if-then statement. Respond in obedience. Pursue holiness, not out of some religious set of rules, but out of love for your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the one who took the wrath that you and I deserve. Third, respond by worshiping in reverence and awe. Respond by worshiping in reverence and awe. The the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Did you hear that last bit? Why do you think that's attached? God is a consuming fire. We would do well to consider that when we worship Him. God cares about how we worship Him. He cares about how we approach His throne. Do you approach the throne of God in reverence and awe? Christ's work on the cross does not free us from this. Christ's work on the cross allows us to do it. It allows us to come before God's throne and worship Him in reverence and awe. Fourthly, respond by walking in the good works that God has prepared for you. That last passage we were reading, Ephesians 2, that section concludes with these words. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are you walking in good works? Are you sharing the gospel with unbelievers? Are you discipling others? Are you serving God's church? Are you taking care of those that are less advantaged than you? Are you walking in the good works that God prepared for you in eternity past? Lastly, I would encourage you to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. The passage we read this morning in the call to worship, Philippians 2, we don't have time to read all of it. uh, But let me just highlight a few things for you this morning. Paul tells us as believers how we should respond to the work of Christ. To Christ humbling himself and taking on human flesh and obediently following the Father's plan and dying on the cross for you and for me. Paul says this is how we need to respond. In verse 2, he says, Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul tells us we respond in God's church by being committed to unity. Count others more significant than yourself. In verse 14, in this same passage, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. We've had some grumbling over the past few years, haven't we? We've had some disputing over the past few years, haven't we? It's pretty simple. Paul said, in light of what Jesus has done for you, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Not some. Not when you feel like it. Not when it's convenient. Not when it's comfortable. Not when it fits your ideology. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that we can be a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We live in a crooked and twisted generation, don't we? And we are called to be lights. And how does God's church stand as a light? By not grumbling and disputing over things. We are called to be committed to each other. Finally, Paul says, hold fast to the word of life, the truth, the Bible. Brothers and sisters, we need to maintain a high view of God, and we may need to maintain a right view of ourselves. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you as a people repenting of too low a view of who you are. We come before you as a people deserving the wrath befitting us who are part of a rebellion against your holiness. We indeed are children of wrath apart from your grace. 
And oh God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that that's how much you love us. That you sent your son to the cross to take our wrath. The wrath that we so deserve. Father, thank you for a kind of love that we cannot even begin to imagine. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to respond in reverence and awe to your holiness. Help us to respond in reverence and awe to your glory. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. God, we pray that those here today who don't know you, God, that they would come to you, that they would receive our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, thanks for all that you've done. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. And now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. You are dismissed.